This is the Gender Justice Brief, a podcast of gender justice. We fight for gender equity by breaking down legal, structural, and cultural barriers and expanding protections. We want to see all people thrive, regardless of their gender, gender expression, and sexual orientation. Welcome, everybody, to our end-of-year mail bag episode. Oh, come on. No, say it the way you say it. Be yourself. I say mailbag. Did I you do it? not. I say, welcome to our mailbag. How do you, how do you say Viagra? Viagra. Viagra mailbag. Viagra. The way we have been spelling this episode at the Gender Justice is that M-A-I-L-B-A-Y-G mailbag episode. Minnesota way. The Minnesota mailbag. Mailbag. Welcome to our mailbag episode. There um, myself, Erin May Quaid, and my esteemed, like, longest-standing colleague at Gender Justice, Jess Braverman, and I are going to answer your question from a lawyer and a legislator or an advocate. Jess, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm Jess Braverman. I'm the legal director at Gender Justice, and I am Erin's most esteemed colleague. She's correct. <laughs> it's so true. Yeah, did I introduce myself? I've noticed I introduce myself about 10% of the time. I like never say my name. Say who you are. I'm Erin May Quaid. Awesome. Yeah. We're, we're getting the thumbs up that I did. So now I've done it twice. Hopefully that'll make up for all of the other episodes where I never said who I was. <laughs> we are just going to jump into questions. We had some really great questions. Everything from elections to the Supreme Court to reproductive rights. And then we're going to end with a little, a little fun question about our expansion into North Dakota, and our favorite Supreme Court justices. The first question we had was, how did the school board elections turn out? There was an October 30th podcast episode, and how is voter turnout? So I will answer this question. The school board elections, I thought, turned out pretty well. The candidates that are partner organizations at Outfront Minnesota, Education Minnesota, were supporting did really well. I think they won 75 or 80% of their elections. There were some folks that were in the pro-book banning, anti-LGBTQ kids, anti-truth and history that got onto school boards in some places, but they weren't in places where it was maybe a surprise or the candidate was a little bit more moderate and maybe fit that district a little more. So overall, good. But I think one thing for all of us to know is just we are going to be having to pay attention to every level of elected government to make sure that our values shine through because some of these places are um, quote-unquote boring but important. So that's what I would say about the, the school board election. And you can go back to our October 30th episode to hear what we were uh, excited about and what we were concerned about then. Anything to add to that, Jess? <laughs> to the school board. I I went to uh, high school in the 90s. Like, I feel like it's hard to see it's hard to go backwards, right? Like when I went to high school, people didn't really talk about gay people. They didn't talk about gay kids. You're made to feel like you're completely alone and isolated and no one in history has ever been gay. And this was in New York City, right? Like in the 90s. And so I I think a lot of these policies people are pushing, they're really harmful. They're really harmful to kids. It's just the wrong message to send. And there are kids in the schools whose parents are gay. I, I think we just need to this fight is a really important fight. Like we can't, we can't let everyone erase us, right? I, I think about that for my daughter all the time where it's just, what is her school experience going to be like, even if she's straight and cisgender? Um, what what are people going to say about her moms or or about gay people that she's going to feel shame about her family? Um, so it is, I, yeah, I went to high school in the 2000s. I'm a little bit, like a little bit younger than you. 
And I remember we had um, a national day of silence uh, in school. And so we just like, wouldn't talk. And I remember our teachers were very supportive. And that was, I was a really big ally, Jess, before I knew I was gay. I was strong. <laughs> <ally. laughs> um, so that's one of my proudest. I have a t-shirt from college I made that said straight, but not narrow. And I was like, are you that? Because no, I've, I've been with my wife, Becca, in like gay spaces and people assume that Becca is straight and I am her like gay guy roommate. And it's just the weirdest thing. And so we've been together in spaces and people are like, Becca, you're such a good ally. And I'm like, yeah, this would make her a very good ally. A very good ally. Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Elise and I would get called sisters. And I just want to like visualize for everybody. I'm five foot two and black biracial and look it and elise is like five eight and has the blondest it's bleach blonde white hair and haze we look nothing like in any realm of reality and we're like three sisters and we're like no we're not sisters so we always get confused for family which i guess we are but a different we, side of it. I, I was once in the subway at, with, with becca and we were going to my parents house spending the night so we had our like overnight bags with us and this cop I don't know why he was even talking to us, but he's, oh, are you going to a sleepover party? I'm like, what? We are like 30-year-old married people. <laughs> what are you talking about? Oh my gosh. That's so funny. It is nice to be confused for being younger. I had a lovely elderly woman yesterday ask me at Abercrombie and Fitch if I was 25. And I was like, no, ma'am, I'm not. I'm just a suburban mom. I'm almost 40. <laughs> You know, I get carded at casinos where the age is 18. Oh, I love that. I st- I just recently stopped getting carded for drinking. Yeah. Like, and this is all on topic on school board elections. Totally. Everybody knows that. Um, yeah. This is why we should never be left to do this. I know. We need an adult in the room. <laughs> we really do. Okay, let's get back on track. The next question we have is regarding the Kate Cox case in Texas. There's, I think, a four-part question. <clears throat> but let's just get back on really quick on Kate Cox. Kate Cox is a um, woman, a mom of two who lives in Texas. She was pregnant with her third child. And um, it was found out that she had full trisomy. And most pregnancies with trisomy 18, full trisomy 18, don't make it. If they do, they survive maybe for an hour. And Kate wanted to have an abortion. And her doctor sought permission to have that abortion from a district court in Texas. It was granted. That was overturned by the Texas Supreme Court. And then Kate Cox's doctor and all the hospitals she had privileges at were threatened by the attorney general in Texas, basically saying, if you perform this abortion, we're really going to come after you. And so even though there's quote unquote medical exceptions in the Texas abortion ban, I I think Kate's story really shows that there are no exceptions. And in fact, the state of Texas argued at the district court and up to the Supreme Court that she does not meet the criteria for a medical exception. So that is Kate's story, and it's heartbreaking and devastating, and it it really just shows. It it puts her fertility at risk, too, right? Like in the future, because of what Texas is doing, not allowing her to deal with this properly, like she could potentially lose any future opportunity of of being of getting pregnant and carrying a, a child to term, which is something she very much wants. Correct. Yeah. She's, she had two previous pregnancies and she had unplanned C-sections. And if she was forced to carry this pregnancy to term, they would have to deliver via C-section. It's very difficult to, not impossible, but difficult to deliver vaginally after having multiple C-sections. And after a third C-section, it's possible that getting pregnant in the future would not be possible. There could be implantation and the cesarean 
um, scar or uterine rupture. It really does put her fertility at risk. Not to mention, this is a dangerous pregnancy. She'd already been in the emergency room, I think, four times, leaking amniotic fluid and and all of those things. So it was a a, a current health risk. Her pregnancy was currently risk. Yeah, I, I have trouble not seeing this as like torture. This is like the Texas governor and attorney general getting involved to literally torture a Texas resident. It's really troubling and painful of a story to follow. It's horrifying. And we should just note, too, that Kate's story has been very public and she's very, I can't imagine. No. Oh, my God. Parenting and working full time and being pregnant and knowing that your pregnancy won't survive. I was, I would be in bed curled up in a ball. And so she's, her and her husband and doctor have endured a lot. But Kate is definitely not the first person who has been forced to so she has left, she left Texas to to access abortion care, but she's not the first person that's had to leave their home state or have been forced by their state to carry pregnancy to term. There was a woman out of Florida, I remember last year, that, that had to carry her baby to term and, and give birth. And it was, I think, I don't remember what it was, but it was a non-viable pregnancy. So this, she's not the first person. It's just been very public. And this happens, this is happening all over the country. So the questions related to that, will she be prosecuted? Will Kate be prosecuted when she returns to Texas? Probably not. No, I, I want to say first, there is no law against traveling to another state to have an abortion. I want to make sure folks understand it is legal to like if you want to if you're someone who wants to come to Minnesota, let's say to have an abortion, like it is legal to have an abortion here. I don't what they're doing here is trying to make people afraid in addition to torturing this woman. And so I just want to make it clear, like it is legal to get an abortion in a state that it's legal to have an abortion, which is, for example, Minnesota. Uh, so people can travel to other states to get an abortion. On the question of whether she will be prosecuted, Texas has been acting absolutely bananas lately, and I wouldn't put everything over anything over them. It's a separate question from would she be convicted, right? Would a court find or jury find that she had, that someone had broken the law here? I, I have trouble seeing that happen. But in terms of prosecution, like, that's a hard thing to predict because it, it can be grandstanding, right? Like, you could prosecute a case where you can't win. It's unethical. It's wrong. Yeah. But it happens. So I wouldn't put anything over them like Texas is the the government there is just behaving in an absolutely indefensible way, not only in this case. Right. We saw that they sent out subpoenas demanding records of hospital records in other states to see if anyone's treated Texas patients. Texas is really taking things to the next level. But I I just want to make it clear, like people can travel to have an abortion. That's not illegal. Um, Correct. And and in Minnesota, we passed a law, um, the Reproductive Freedom Defense Act, that protects patients' medical records in Minnesota uh, from out-of-state actors looking to prosecute. Um, there's probably other ways that we can shore that law up to make sure that there are other people who can't have access to maybe your pharmacy records, for example. But one thing I was wondering about, Jess, is that the SB8 in Texas, which is the law that allows like vigilantes to sue other people for helping people get abortions, could her husband be sued for quote unquote aiding and abetting if it's, he went with her? It's a question of whether and how SB8 would apply to an abortion that didn't take place in Texas, where the doctor wasn't like licensed to practice in Texas. Um, I the way SB8 is written, I I wouldn't think it would apply, but that's the pro you know the problem with SB8. Yeah is anyone can sue anyone, right? Like I can yeah. sue you, Aaron, right now and claim you stole my dog. Like 
it would be a frivolous lawsuit. I'd I'd lose my license if I did that right. But like I, anyone can sue anyone. The the question is, is SB8, can it be read to cover a scenario like this? I think looking at SB8, I I think it covers abortions in Texas or at most if the doctor's licensed in Texas, but I don't believe it would cover um, like a doc, like suing a doctor in another state who did not provide an abortion in Texas and has like otherwise no connection to Texas. What about her husband driving her to the airport? I would think it's the same if typically the way uh, criminal law works is the thing at the end has to be illegal. Oh, um, I see. Okay. Yeah. So if what if or, or I know SB it's not a criminal law, but like typically the question is, was she having an abortion in Texas? Was he helping her right. have an abortion in Texas? I don't know what a court would ultimately do if an SB8 lawsuit was brought, but I I, I don't read it to cover this scenario. I guess we'd have to wait and see. Okay. It's a horrifying story. And what's interesting to me, because there's another woman in, oh, I'm going to get the state wrong. Is it Ohio? The Brittany Watts case. Brittany Watts is a woman who, and Jess is going to Google right now for me to make sure I have the state correct. But she's a woman about the same stage of pregnancy as Kate Cox, who was having a miscarriage and went to go get treated at a hospital and was essentially turned away. And so she went home and had her miscarriage at home. And the nurse that was supposed to be providing her care called the cops. And when the cops went to her house, they dismantled this woman's toilet and then charged her with a felony for the way that she had her miscarriage, for the way that she... Yeah, basically how how she had her miscarriage. And I think this thing that stands out to me, Kate Cox is a white woman in Texas who was able to leave and, and access abortion care. And Brittany was, is a black woman. And did you find the state? Yes. <laughs> is it Ohio? Yeah, it is. Yes. Um, yeah, Ohio. Ohio. Who was turned away and then had the cops call on her for having a miscarriage after she was denied care in an emergency room and now is charged with a felony for having a miscarriage. And it's important to understand that the whole point of abortion bans is to not only control people's bodies, but it's to criminalize pregnancy outcomes. And we are seeing that happen now. And that has been happening, but we will see that um, continue to happen. Part of this question too, and then we can move on to the next one, is when courts get involved, there will be delays to necessary care. What can uh, pregnant people do outside from taking the risk to seek out-of-state care, especially when leaving the state may result in legal consequences? Honestly, like this is what's really heartbreaking about abortion bans is that if you can't access care in your state, then the only other option is to leave your state and access care somewhere else. That's that is where we are at. Um, Or if there is a doctor willing to risk all of their medical training and their license and jail time to provide you care, that's pretty much the only other option. And uh, I think very few doctors, understandably, are willing to do that. That is the situation we're at, and that is why it's so dire and so dangerous for any pregnant person to not have access to the full spectrum of pregnancy care. That's why we fight for what we fight for. Absolutely. Okay, I'm going to go to the next question, unless you have anything to add on the Kate Cox story. No, it's just really, it's horrifying. It's like absolutely horrifying. No. And it's not, it was not unknowable, right? Like we, when we listened to the Dobbs oral arguments, like this is exactly the scenarios we were imagining before. Yeah, Yeah, it it is. It's, there's no words. It's what is the role of government? Is is it like to literally monitor each individual person's like medical care? Absolutely not. They're not. The people who pass these laws don't know how pregnancy works and and they want to play doctor. Like it's, 
Judges aren't doctors. Lawyers aren't doctors. Lawmakers aren't. aren't sometimes they happen to be sometimes doctors, but not like the, the whole body, right? The legislative body that passes right. these laws. I, it's horrifying that the government can do this to someone. And just demonstrative of the fact that lawmakers are doctors as a body. I think Missouri introduced a bill that would be a 15-day abortion ban. This is a fun fact. You are not pregnant after 15 days. It's actually not possible. That's how long it takes for an egg to be fertilized and an implant into the uterus. Just showing their ass. Uh, okay, next question. I should have pulled the names. These were really great questions from great people. Um, Kelvin, I believe, asked the last question. Um, what did you think of the New York Times piece on Dobbs that ran? Uh, does knowing what happened give us new insight into what to do next to protect abortion rights on the state level or otherwise ensure abortion access? So do you want to briefly, did you read this piece in the New York Times? I, I did. Did you? Okay. I did. Yes, I was of the role. So just to briefly recap, we'll put this in the show notes, but it was a New York Times piece that kind of walked through the timeline of how the Dobbs case, which overturned Roe v. Wade, came to the Supreme Court, was heard at the Supreme Court, and then how the opinion came down overturning Roe v. Wade. And it's worth a read. There were some things that really stuck out to me in the piece, but I want you to go first, Jess, because you're a lawyer and you probably read that and came away with different oh my goshes than I did. Yeah, I think the things for me that this really highlights when I first started lawyering, I represented kids in family court. And I remember I had this one judge who I'd be representing. The kids would typically want to go home. It, these were uh, so-called abuse and neglect cases, CPS cases, whatever, whatever you want to call them. But it's cases where parents are accused of, of having done something that puts the kids in danger. The kids usually wanted to go home because there is a real harm to putting kids in foster care. Like you, you can't really discount that when you're trying to figure out like where will kids be most safe. And so there was this one judge who, in every case, the government would say, we want to put this kid in foster care or we want to parole them to their parent, right? Meaning like they stay home with their parent or they go to foster care. And he was insistent that in every case he wouldn't parole a kid to the parent. He'd say, I'm either put, ordering them in foster care or I'm doing nothing. If I do nothing, they stay home with the parent. And I thought it was such a weird hill to die on until I learned what happened, which is that years ago, a kid that he sent to a family member was unfortunately died in their care. And the government blamed him for putting the kid with the family member, but he did it at the government's urging, right? And he became the face of this kid died because this judge sent the kid to this family member. And it really, I, I know this sounds like an unrelated thing, but what it really sh taught me really early on in my career was that like judges are just people they're really influenced by things like public opinion. Is my name going to be in the news? Things like that, right? What he was doing, the argument over, do you parole the kid or just let them go home? It's not a legal question, right? Like I was looking through the statute to be like, is he right? The answer is not in the statute. It's in the newspapers, right? It's in the, it's in the court of public opinion. It's right. And how much that matters in the law, like they're not like reading just legal stuff in a vacuum and making decisions. And I think you know, what what the New York Times piece was about was that basically Mississippi had a 15 week abortion ban, clearly in violation of Roe and Casey. It's a pre-viability abortion ban, which they cannot do. And when the makeup of the court changed, Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed, Amy Connie Barrett joined the bench. They changed their argument from let us do a 15 week ban to overturn Roe entirely. And the only thing that changed was the makeup of the court. 
Right. And I think it just it's not it's outrageous. Like we can be outraged by this. Right. Like it's it, and maybe come up with solutions, term limits, what, whatever. But my job is to get what we need now. And so from my view, I look at this more. Is this good? Is this bad? I don't, it's not like that's an interesting question. And there's like really smart people who can answer that. But for me, it's it's not good. like it's good. It's bad. It is right. It's how. It's how legal decisions are often made. And knowing that is helpful to making sure I can continue to get what my clients need. Does that make sense? It does. Absolutely does. And I think my takeaway was remarkably similar, but slightly different or is like in the same topic. Part of the argument or part of the the, uh, article talks about the fact that Amy Coney Barrett did want to hear that case right away because she just gotten on the court. And I know she's written a law review article many years ago, basically saying that Overturning precedent after there's a a change in the makeup of the Supreme Court gives the feeling to the public that it's political, right? And so she's already railed against the very thing that they were doing. Um, And what stuck out to me is, one, that all of the women on the court, including Amy Coney Barrett, Barrett, voted not to hear the case. They said no. And so it was all the men who gave the green light for this case to come to the Supreme Court and hear it. So that really stuck out to me. But also the things that stuck out to me... Gorsuch signed the 98-page opinion uh, 10 minutes after it came into his inbox. And I want to really make it clear, too, because this case was heard in December of 2021. And the 98-page draft opinion that cited, like, 19th century and 16th century, like, laws and statutes and all of these things came to everybody in February. So how was Alito able to write a 98-page opinion with all of those things? in a very short amount of time, and then take it to his colleagues who signed on in like 10 minutes. And to not have any changes, not even a word, not even a citation, not like nothing, that is, what it tells me is the thing that we felt, right? That this case was pre-decided, that they knew that they wanted to overturn Roe v. Wade, that they were just looking for a way to do it. So that it was outcome determinant. That stuck out to me, and that was made very clear to the reporting. Um, And it really stuck out to me. Okay, so there's the a lawmaker, right? 98-page bills. It would not be uncommon to have somebody sign on to a 98-page bill the first time they see it because the lawmaking process has many opportunities to change it, right? You have every committee hearing in the Senate, every committee hearing in the House. You have the floor vote in the Senate, the floor vote in the House, conference committee. So there are just so many options to fix things, right? So if I read a 98-page bill and I'm like, here's something I want different, I don't need to email back and say, make it different now. I can just have that be made different later. This is the opposite when it comes to a court ruling. When they send you the opinion, that's what it's going to be. So to sign your name in 10 minutes from a 98-page document saying, no changes, this looks good to me. Like, I'm baffled by that. And it just tells me that the goal was to overturn Roe v. Wade. It actually did not matter. All of the 98, like, pages of reasoning were unimportant to the Yeah, I, I, I think. The other lesson from this is if if when they say when the Supreme Court judges say something, we should just believe them. We should stop trying to figure out if they say, as they repeatedly have done, that they want to overturn Roe, like just believe them. And they've said they want to overturn Griswold and Eisenstadt, which those two cases are the right to contraception. Let's believe them. Right. And they want to overturn Obergefell. Like we should believe them. I I don't say that to scare folks. I say that because it just it means we know what we need to get ready for. Right. This is we have the heads up. Let's make sure we're doing what we need to do to maintain our bodily autonomy, to maintain our rights and to keep the government from torturing people like Jesus. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think, yeah, the TLDR is everything in my takeaway from that article yeah. is exactly how I thought it worked. And they are exactly who I think they are. Yeah. That's exactly what it is. So, right. Yeah. And, and it's you can spend a lot of time talking about, is this good? Is this bad? I think most people would say it's bad, but like, it is. So what are we going to do? <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Okay. So moving on a little bit. This is for you, Jess. Yeah. How does gender justice decide which cases to take? And what has been your favorite gender justice case? Oh, gender justice decides which case to take based on a few different factors. One, unfortunately, is capacity. And this is like the one I hate the most. Like there, we are so busy. For a while, it was just me and Christy. Now we have additional attorneys. But just capacity alone, if we take a case, we need to make sure we have the capacity to do a good job for the client. We, we cannot do We're not doing anyone any favors if we take cases that we're not actually, we don't have the bandwidth to do a good job on. And so that really limits the number of cases. And so capacity is a huge issue. Um, then if we have capacity, we look at what our strategic plan is. So we're a nonprofit and nonprofits have these things called strategic plans where they say, I know I, my background is I was a public defender. I'm new to the nonprofit. Like this is my first like nonprofit job. So the jargon, but it's where you decide what as an organization are you going to focus on, prioritize, right? Because your capacity is limited. It's not like what's important and what's not important. It's more like our time is limited. We need to do a good job with the things we decide to take on. So let's figure out what that's going to be. And so that's a huge piece. Typically, yeah. one other piece about nonprofits is nonprofits are tax exempt. And part of the reason we're tax exempt is we're supposed to meet a need in a community. And so we're supposed to, to be responsive to that. And that's why we have strategic plans to basically say how we're, we're being responsive yeah. to the community in and, order to receive the tax exempt status that we have. Yes. And the third consideration is, is this like a place where the law is unsettled? Does the law need to be pushed in this area? Or is this like a pretty straightforward case where it'd be really easy for this person to find a great attorney to represent them who's not us? And so we will refer a lot of cases out. It has nothing to do with the strength of the case. Like we refer, sometimes the cases we refer out are the strongest cases mm -hmm. because we know that person's going to find a great attorney. The law's settled. Like they just need someone really who's going to really be on their side and do a good job. And we save our capacity for cases where the law is a bit unsettled, where other people may be nervous to take the case, where our subject matter expertise comes into play. And so those are the, the main ways that we pick. I think people have an idea that we look for a perfect plaintiff. Like we go, like we know what we want to sue and we go out and we try to find some perfect angel who's never done anything wrong in their life, who's going to, and like, we don't, we don't do that. I can't think of a time where we've turned someone away because of who who they are or they've committed a crime or they're not like the, the perfect plaintiff we, we that's definitely not um, we don't make up whole lawsuits to mm -hmm. get the outcome we're looking for no our clients uh, are real people are, yeah, they're real people and most and almost all of them have come to us asking for legal representation it's pretty rare that we've reached out to someone that's see that's good to know and yeah, I think you were basically describing what it is, but gender justice does impact litigation, not direct service. When Jess is talking about a lot, the law is unsettled or it hasn't been developed, and then our case that we take could make an impact, not just for our client, which of course is the, the main priority, but for a lot of other people. Yep. So that's, that is how we decide cases. Okay, your favorite case this year overall, I don't know. 
Oh my God. How, like, how does anyone decide? I'm like getting my list of what cases have we done this year? I, my, one of my favorite, the case I like came here to do was to sue the DOC for discrimination against trans people. The DOC is the Department of Corrections. They run the prisons in Minnesota and their policies were, were horrible. The way they treated trans women in particular was horrible. Um, the case is a bummer because at the end of it, the client is still in prison. And what I prefer is like that they not be in prison. And so it's a like you win and it's OK. So now she got moved to a different prison. But yeah. it, it was a case that when I was a public defender, the client we represented in that case was my friend's client in our office. I was already like really wanting the case. But at the time, I didn't know how to bring civil lawsuits. I came to gender justice and then her case fell on my lap and I was like, oh, my God, this is like wow. exactly what I this is literally the lawsuit I wanted to do. And we did it and we were successful. And so that's probably it's not like fav- I don't have a favorite, but it's one that I, I'm just really excited about. I really all our cases like how lucky that I get to work here with the most interesting cases and incredible clients. Um, it, it's not a favorite. It's more of just like everything that was a case where like everything came together and it's something I'd wanted to do for the longest time yeah um that's really cool I actually I don't think I knew that part of that story so that's really cool let's see so the second part of that question is for me now that Minnesota is doing more work in North Dakota can you talk a little bit about gender justice's plan there and whether there's an opportunity to expand the work in this region. So yes, Minnesota, we are now a regional organization. We do our work in Minnesota and North Dakota and South Dakota. And so as we have expanded into North Dakota, it's been very intentional. It's We do our work alongside movement partners and alongside communities. So we're not just coming in and saying, hey, here we are. We're just going to do all this stuff. Go in and say, hey, we would like to bring the kind of work we do and the way we do the work to North Dakota. And we have a North Dakota state director, Christina, who's incredible, um, lifelong North Dakota. And that we are building relationships alongside building coalition to basically do gender equity work in North Dakota. So that has looked like a lawsuit because that's what we're a law firm when we are suing at North Dakota over their um, ban on essential health care for trans youth. And we are also working on some gender equity pieces. There's I just found out recently that North Dakota had the largest number per capita of working mothers in the entire United States. And so there's a lot of work to be done to make sure that those working moms have pregnancy rights and pumping rights and paid family medical leave and probably daycare and all of those things, too. So we've got work to do there. And they also have an abortion ban that we're suing over. So the work uh, is expanded. Just not. Yep. Yeah, no. yeah so the, the work is expanding. Um, I'm excited about our work in North Dakota. It's hard. It's scary. Like it, it's definitely a different. The arguments you have to make are a little different. It's not the same. Like every state is different and North Dakota is not the same state as Minnesota. Um, but it's so important there. Um, we saw in the last legislative session, trans kids just getting beaten up by legislators. It's horrible to see and if we can do any part in helping, you know, you if it's a cliche, right? But if you don't stand up to bullies, they're going to keep bullying you. Like yeah. anything we can do to help folks stand up. And people in North Dakota have stood up like they're fearless, like they're incredible. Yeah. In North Dakota are incredible. And so I, I'm so excited to work with them. Me too. Me too. They're really just it's a wonderful state. And I think one of the coolest parts about 
being a person who like loves Minnesota and loves Minnesota so much, but also this entire region is seeing how different the states are, but also how the desires and the wants are the same. That is true literally around the world. Like people want to be safe and be valued and thrive and put food on the table and enjoy things. Like the wants of life just don't differ. But the way that we live or the way we express it, it, it is different and the colloquialisms are different and the nuances are different. And so that's just really fun to experience. This next question is also for me. What's the best and worst thing about being a lawmaker? You know, you know who wrote that question? Did I didn't. That. You did. Do you want to know the question? Erin, what's the best and worst thing about being a lawmaker? The worst thing about being a lawmaker is, is for me, that I cannot speak for all my other colleagues, but for me, the worst part is that we are considered a part-time legislature and we're then paid like a part-time legislature. And so it is really hard to find a job that, and this probably is true for a lot of my colleagues, to find a job where they're fine with you being gone like five, four or five months out of the year and then being there the rest of the year that will also pay you to do your job and, but also be gone. That's hard. And, and then being away from my baby, this past session was really difficult for me. I was gone a lot. Yeah. And you also like, you we don't get to send each other slack messages all day about the stupid nonsense that comes up and it's who am i supposed to like this hilarious thing happened aaron must think this is so funny no aaron's not here she's at the capitol writing laws not here making jokes with me it's the worst i know i do miss it i do miss it i have a a signal thread with my first term colleagues and so that's where a lot of my jokes do go during session but it's not the same just no they're they're not as they're not as funny they're no, funny. they are not. They're not no, as funny. they're not as funny as all. The best thing about being a lawmaker is being able to ch- make changes to problems in people's lives, to hear a story from somebody and have the ability to say, I will help find a solution to make that better. That is, that's like the best thing in the whole world is to know about a thing and be able to do something about that thing. Can I just say something? Having worked with you for all these years, like that sounds cheesy, but it's like a hundred percent your your MO, just work. You are a pro- like, all you want to do is solve problems and be helpful. And it's amazing. So when you hear politicians say that, I used to be, remember when we met, I used to be so like oh, politicians. Ugh. yeah. And I probably said it to you even when you were a politician, but I don't feel that way anymore. Cause like you, it's, it's so genuine. You do just want to solve problems and help. Yeah. And there's not no like an ulterior motive. Like, no, gosh, no. I th- there's a lot of ways I could do other things with different motives. <laughs> yeah. And I'd have a totally different job. Okay, so did, did you write this next question too? I did. So this is something I, I was totally wrong about before I started working with you. When we write into our lawmakers, do they actually read it? Does it make a difference? And I used to assume, no, they don't read it. They don't care. It, What's the deal? They do read it. Most of them read it. Almost all of them read it. And they do care. Except the ones who don't care. You know, I'm saying, you know if you have a lawmaker who doesn't care. And I won't name names, but they're the one that pops into my mind. But yes, they do care. I will tell you that the way to make it different. Legislators, like we have our emails on our phone and on our computer. And so we spend a lot of time in committee. We spend a lot of time on the floor and we're listening, but you can use scroll your email. The thing that will make it different from a tally, like we're tallying up how many people are for or against a thing, is if you write something that's different than a form email. And form emails can be great, right? The organizations who put together form emails that you sign your name to, are super, super helpful because we just get a a number, right? Okay, I got 15 emails about 
making sure that the parks are accessible. And that means it's really important to people in my community. And so that's really helpful. And sometimes it can alert you to an issue you did not know about at all. And the numbers can be low to make a difference. Like 15 could be a lot, right? 15 is a lot. I'm going to tell you right now. 15 is a lot. It feels like a lot. So So each each email, like even if it's a form email, right? Like even if a person's too shy or doesn't have the time or doesn't know how to articulate, but knows what they want, like those yep. form emails, sir, right? They matter. Absolutely. And a lot of times, especially if it's in lawmakers are on three or four committees and we tend to be subject matter experts in the jurisdiction of that committee. And so if it's something that's outside of my jurisdiction, like if it's on the labor committee or the energy committee, sometimes I'll print out those one of the form emails so that I have the information that was contained therein, like the bill number or some of the the important pieces. So those things are really important. When you write a personal email to your legislator, that also like sharing your story, that is also really important. And I read those. I read every single one. I respond to every single one. Sometimes I have an auto reply on my inbox to say, I apologize if it takes me a long time to respond because I respond to each one myself. I am currently responding to people who emailed me during session that were like personal emails. So it does make a difference and it does matter. Even if your lawmaker you think they agree with you on everything, they actually still need to hear from you because what happens is they hear from the people who don't agree with them. And if they never hear from the people that do agree with them, it feels really like you're out on this limb and that you're like going against what people in your community think. The last thing I'll say is that it's always more impactful to email your own legislator. So when people see, I get emails all the time. There's this group. I don't know who they are. I don't know where they're located. I don't think it's Minnesota. But they encourage people to check email all the state legislators. And they I think they think we're members of Congress. So like they're telling us to impeach Mayorkas, like Secretary Mayorkas. That's not something that state lawmakers do, right? Or leave the uh, World Health Organization. Also not something that the Minnesota legislature does. The ask has to be appropriate for the lawmaker. And I get all these emails from people who don't live in my community. And so I just delete because that they're not my constituents and they're not even asking me about a thing that I can do. So those are like two really important pieces, something that your lawmaker that you're emailing can do something about and or a problem that they need to know about. And then second, that you live in their district. And unless they're like a chair of a committee and it's about what they chair in the committee, that might be the exception there. Those are my helpful hints. I have a question for you to ask. Yes. What is the hardest thing about being aware? Oh, gosh. I yeah, no, I think it's sometimes. I think it's hard to keep perspective. Like when I was a public defender, like what I did or didn't do or how I did it, like someone could go to prison and that's terrifying, right? I don't want anyone to go to prison and it matters so much to them, like that I listen to them and what kind of job I do. And so that was really hard in its own way. And it was really hard. Like I've represented, it's always hard. I think everyone deserves representation. There were clients I've had where they've insisted they have not done what they're charged with. And I 100% believe them. And that's a terrifying case. Some clients will tell you. They're like, yeah, I did this, but let's see what we can, what's the best outcome here. It's not, it's not that I doubt all my clients. It's I have some who like steadfastly know. And then the evidence I say, I I agree with them. And I agree with you. Yeah. There are days where I wake up and I'm like, why couldn't I just be like, I don't, a job that just doesn't require any brain power or stress. It's that. And so now. The work we do is more public and that can be really scary and it's impact litigation. So it impacts a lot of people. 
And it's hard to keep in mind, law does not mean access, right? Like you can have a legal right. It doesn't necessarily mean you can access that right. There's so many things that factor into our ability to thrive and our ability to have bodily autonomy and our ability to live our lives. It doesn't all come down to what the law is. That just plays a, it plays a big role, but yeah. it's not like the beginning or end of us being able to live our, our lives authentically. Yeah. And I think keeping that perspective is so hard because in the moment that you're doing a case when you're appearing in court it feels you feel like there is a, a weight and yeah I, I just think the it's important right like the people by. like a lot of the work is uh, the lawyering the laws it's a small piece of a bigger picture yeah. and keeping that in perspective is it's both really important and and really hard to do in the moment so it's that kind of stress is hard yeah that's real like the stakes are so high I think that they feel high they feel high they are I would say they are high I don't know if they're arbitrarily feeling high I think that that is maybe true about being a lawmaker too, is that sometimes it's not about passing the law or just about passing the law. It's about telling people that it, that the law is different because perception is so much of the reality. If you perceive it to be illegal to leave your state to have an abortion, even though it's not illegal, then you won't go. And absolutely. Communi- like the communications, the narrative, like that is hard to shape. I yeah, I think about it this way, though, like the Bostock case, right? Huge win for trans rights, right? Like you cannot discriminate against transgender employees like that. That is a huge legal win. What was that? 2020. But look yeah. at where we are now, like gender affirming care bans. You it's like the wins in court are big. They matter. They're a big deal. They're not the be all end all. Like there's so much more work that needs to be done outside of the courtroom. And that's often like even more important than the stuff we do in court. It's just what we do in court is so visible that it's mm-hmm. hard to it's hard to keep that in mind. But what activists do, what ad- advocates do, it's so important. It's crucial. And yes. you can have all the rights in the world and it doesn't, it, it cannot be as important as changing public perception, making things yep. more accessible. Yeah. And also like judges, again, are people too. And there yep. are times where like they could not have come to the decision in the Obergefell case, nationalizing marriage equality if the public wasn't there. And so changing public opinion and changing yeah. public opinion is so important to getting the outcomes that we look for at both the legislature and in the court. Yep, absolutely. That's just, yeah, that makes sense. That's really interesting to know. What's your favorite thing about being a lawyer? I like, I like like strategy, problem solving kind of stuff. I like coming up with what's the best art. What are they going to say? Then what do I say? I like that kind of strategizing stuff. And I love working with clients. I love that feeling where someone feels heard and like the thing they want was expressed and like sometimes I've had cases where that's more important than the winning or the losing it's like someone feels like they were heard they were advocated for someone cares and if I can do that for someone like that's wonderful like what a lucky person I yeah this job that's so real that's great I really like that a lot when you were talking about the strategy piece it reminded me of probably one of my favorite moments from session and this nobody is gonna know what this moment was it doesn't matter but when we were going to hear the trans refuge bill, I was getting a lot of emails from one of the anti-LGBTQ hate groups, and they kept saying that this was like a kidnapping bill, right? That it allowed the government to take children from parents who didn't support their kid being trans, which is not true. And so because I knew that argument was coming, I actually went to the Florida legislature's website because they actually do have a bill or had a bill at the time that would have allowed the state to remove children from the homes of parents who were oh supporting kid accessing gender affirming care. So it was actually a kidnapping bill. 
So I prepared for the floor by having that Florida law bill turned into a Minnesota bill uh, as an amendment. And so when it got brought up on the floor of the legislature by an opponent of my bill, I literally, if you look behind, because he sits right in front and to the left of me. And so when the camera's on him, I'm actually in the background. And so when he started talking and saying this was a kidnapping bill, my face is literally giddy. I am gleeful because I have an amendment ready that is an actual kidnapping bill from an actual state that wants to kidnap trans kids. And so I offered it as an amendment to say, if you'd like to vote for the Florida law that is an actual kidnapping bill, here it is. And it was just like, I don't know why he wasn't prepared for that. Like he'd been saying it all the time. And it was just this like delicious moment of you showed your ass, like, go ahead. And, and he really, there was a moment where he was like, I don't know what to do. How do I vote on this bill? And it was really, or this. And you did that knowing there was no risk of that passing, of course. Oh, yeah. Like, we, I told everybody, I said, hey, everybody, like, if you support my bill, please vote no on this amendment. But I just really wanted you to have the opportunity to vote on what people in your party are doing in Florida on an actual kidnapping bill. Go right ahead. So I offered right. it like, so we had the numbers to vote it down, but I just yeah. wanted to put him in his place. He was yeah. very flustered and very upset that I got him. That's a good moment. So that was fun. Okay. We have two more questions left. They're easy ones. For maybe you, this, uh, this one is. I don't really know. Who is your favorite Supreme Court justice, current or historical? I have, there's two top contenders. Sonia mm-hmm. Sotomayor and Katanji mm-hmm. Brown-Jackson. The, the thing that puts Sonia Sotomayor a little bit more over the edge is, first of all, she's just been there longer. So I've had a longer time to read her work and follow her career as a SCOTUS judge. The other thing is, like me, she's from the Bronx. And so that's always going to give her a leg up. And so I, I think it's probably Sonia Sotomayor, but like Ketanji Brown Jackson's opinions are just wonderful to read. So it's a close, it's a close call. So uh, Ketanji Brown Jackson is mine and it really yeah. is like, I feel so I read dissents on this court all the time and, and some of them are real barn burners, but I learn so much from her mm-hmm. and she's got such a precise and plain language way of writing it that I totally get, I get to edit, but it's so art, like artful, it's an art, it's an art yeah. and also it's like originalism. And so I feel as we've just never seen as in a lot of these, like this progressive originalism, and it just, of course, a black woman would just do it like that. So she is definitely mine, but I do love like a Sotomayor descent. I love it. And, and Higgins too. Uh, yeah. I yeah. love Sotomayor's opinions and descents because she always remembers that there's like a human being people. or people attached to the case. And she's always the one to infuse that into her opinions. Like people matter. The effect on people matter. We have to stop pretending that there's no people involved and this is just academic. And so I love her for that. But Katan, yeah, Katan, I love reading a Katanji Brown Jackson opinion. So I, that's a tough, it's the Bronx thing that really. It's, I think it's, that's tough. You just, you take some Samara, I'll take Katanji Brown Jackson. Okay, last question. What is your top hype up song and your top wind down song? Ooh. Yesterday, I had a court of appeals argument and I was psyching myself up. So I played Funky Town on a loop. And Funky Town is about leaving Minneapolis to go to New York. I left New York to come to Minneapolis. So I like reverse Funky Town. But I love that. That song is I love that song for a hype up song. And then for a wind down song, it's Cruisin' by Smokey Robinson. Like, love that song. I could listen to that on a loop while driving up West River Road and. I don't know. Like, that's the most like yeah, fancy thing I could think of in Minnesota. Minnesota is not like the most romantic. 
Hey, go to the Starbucks break. It's very romantic. Yeah, it's what we have. How yeah. about you? My top uh, hype up song is Electric Lady by Janelle Monet. Like one of the best artists and actresses, actually. She started acting. She's really good. And then the my top wind down song. This is so weird. I should make one up, but I'm just going to be honest. It's Imogen Heap's Hide and Seek. It's a very like relaxing song to me. So those are my two. Excellent. I feel like I've gotten to know you better. I know. Do you have New Year's intentions? I, I don't like resolutions. I just make intentions <laughs> and to, do you have any? I have the like reverse diet. Like I know a lot of people are like, I'm going to start a diet. I have the reverse. Mm-hmm. Like, if by the time the state fair rolls around, I don't need new pants. Something has gone wrong. I want to eat all the sweets in the city that I haven't tried yet and just yeah. like really savor and enjoy them. Uh, like maybe one a week or something. If I do that, I think I can hit everything in a year. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and even get some old favorites in there too. I have a massive sweet tooth. So my goal is just to feed my massive sweet tooth. Uh, yeah. How about you, Erin? If you find out where they make the Amish donuts, will you let me know? Because I think about those <laughs> almost every day. My biggest intention, honestly, is to just build, keep building on habits that make me feel better. I work out intermittently and I just I need to move my body more and I want to I I do hot yoga and I just haven't been able to get back into it ever since I had the baby it's just time mostly and hair math like like the amount of time it's not that I don't have an hour to go to yoga it's that I don't have enough time to then shower and wait for my hair to dry for me to be presentable to go to public that makes any sense so I I know you say it's I know you say it's because you had a baby but we tried to go to yoga when you did not have a baby. We did not make it to yoga. Okay, but that's because I was driving the van for lobby day from the van rental place back to St. Paul, and it was terrifying. It was so sad. There was just an empty yoga man in front oh, of me. No. They wouldn't let Aaron. I was in the class late. Driving this bus, a literal bus, through the streets of St. Paul. I have to get to my yoga. I thought I was going to hit every car. It was, I don't know, license driving bus. It was just not, not my best day. But do you want to go to high yoga with me? Or did you not enjoy it? I, no, I'm not very flexible, but sure. That's what the heat is for, number okay. one. All right. Do it in practice. Yeah, we'll do a hot, that's our intention is to do one hot yoga class in 2024. I love that. So yeah, just build better, continue to build habits that make me feel better. Going to sleep at a decent time and getting up but I'm actually more of a morning or a night person than I'm a morning person so I feel fine at night it's mornings I just feel like I'm crawling up a mountain to get to some sort of like normalcy of my brain I try to think if there's an and just watch my baby grow she I love watching her grow she's so funny and so sweet she started saying I love you oh I love you it's very cute that's enough yeah and yoga with Jess. Thank you all for joining us for this wonderful, fun year of Gender Justice Podcast, the brief Gender Justice Brief. We are going to be off. Gender Justice is closed the last week of December and the first week of January. So your next episode will not come out until January 13th. So I know it's going to be really hard. You'll miss us all, but we will be back January 13th with a new episode. We are wishing you a happy solstice and a happy new year. And a happy any holiday you may celebrate between now and the end of the year, or actually the first two weeks of January. Any holidays you celebrate in there, or birthdays, or what anniversaries, births, literally anything that you might be celebrating, we are wishing you a happy celebration. Thank you all so much, and have a great new year. 
Thanks for tuning in to the Gender Justice Brief. This show is produced by Gunter Janel and Audra Griegis. To keep up with our work in real time, be sure to check out the show notes for where to find us on the web, social media, and to sign up for text updates. Don't forget to subscribe, leave a review, and share to help us spread our message. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.